Hi, my name is Catherine. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 20, 1 through 2 and 14. Then God spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do not commit adultery. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Lou. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 19. I have the freedom to do anything, but not everything is helpful. I have the freedom to do anything, but I won't be controlled by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and yet God will do away with both. The body isn't for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God has raised the Lord and will raise us through his power. Don't you know that your bodies are parts of Christ? So then, should I take parts of Christ and make them a part of someone who is sleeping around? No way. Don't you know that anyone who is joined to someone who is sleeping around is one body with that person? The scripture says, the two will become one flesh. The one who is joined to the Lord is one with spirit in, in, is one spirit with him. Avoid sexual immorality. Every sin that a person can do is committed outside the body, except those who engage in sexual immorality commit sin against their own bodies. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit from God and you don't belong to yourselves? The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Tom. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body go into hell. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we need your grace today. We need your grace to remind us who you are. The faithful, merciful, redeemer. And so we ask this morning as we listen to your word that you would speak to us, that you will allow us to embrace the warnings that come from your truth and the welcome that comes from your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to be back with all of you. Uh, we missed you. We had a wonderful trip. Of course, we were back last Sunday. Uh, I joined Brian in the worship team last Sunday and kind of had a little fun uh, leading in worship. But it's great to be back in the pulpit. And uh, just to tell you, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. Thanks for all your online Facebook, you know, likes and hearts and cheers and, and well wishes. It was a special, special trip. It was special, um, uh, of course, because of the graduation ceremony and having the family there. It was really 
Uh, it's sort of this fantasy experience, you know, a graduation ceremony in this thousand-year-old Norman cathedral. Uh, I don't know how many university graduations happen in old Romanesque buildings, um, but it was, a, it was a special experience, and I sat down after shaking the chancellor's hand and just wept and just said, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. So I'm overwhelmed with the grace, by the grace and goodness of God. And then, you know, we did a whole bunch of sightseeing stuff, and... Um, uh, but we also did a whole bunch of ministry stuff. We were hosted by several churches uh, over the Sundays that we were there, and uh, I felt like a little bit like Paul saying, I'm poured out like a drink offering. Basically, if they said, would you speak at this service? I said yes. And they said, would you meet with our leaders for a post-service lunch? I said yes. And how about a post-service dinner? I said yes. And so it was great. And, and I came back so encouraged, and, uh, and it reminded me of several things, but it reminded me of you guys because it reminds me that when we're focused on the mission of God, you can put up with a whole lot of other inconveniences and lack of comforts. I mean, look at you guys in this hot Palmer High School this morning. You're here fanning yourselves, but you're here because you believe that something special happens when we gather as the people of God, and you believe that our gathering in downtown Colorado Springs matters. So it made me so grateful for you guys, and grateful, grateful, grateful to be back. Amen. Bless you. Um, this morning, we're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments, and, and just as a, a way of kind of framing it and reminding ourselves, some of you may be jumping into the series for the first time, maybe you're visiting over the summer, and so you're kind of thinking, well, that doesn't seem like a really nice, happy, light and fluffy summer series to do. You're correct. Uh, it's, it's not. Um, but we, we're committed to sort of teaching through um, the Word of God, and, and the Ten Commandments is one of those things where we have such a high regard for it. We want our lawmakers to have it on, on their walls, and we sort of know this is an important document, but we're not always sure if we understand it correctly. And so sometimes as Christians, we kind of say, oh, the Ten Commandments, that's everything. And then we say, well, actually, maybe that was just sort of God's first mode of operation. And then he kind of, you know, he, he stopped being so uptight, softened in his old age, and then just said, ah, grace, you know. And so we sort of discard it, but we think maybe it still is important. Or we think, oh, the Ten Commandments, they're there to just sort of make us desperate and cry out for God, but really the heart of it doesn't teach us anything at all. And that's only half true. The Ten Commandments, as we've been saying over and over again in the series, are not arbitrary rules, but they actually reveal God's character and our calling. And so we began our series reminding ourselves that God had already called Abraham and God had already made Israel his people. God already, already chose them by grace. God had already saved them from Egypt by grace. And now God was giving them these commandments. So the commandments were never a way to impress God or to earn your salvation. Even in the Old Testament, the commandments are always, have always been a window into God's character. They show us what God is like. And so each week as we've been unpacking a different commandment, we're asking ourselves a question, what does this say to us about who God is? But there's a second part of this. It doesn't just reveal God's character, it also reveals our calling. Imagine being these Israelites who had been slaves for a lot of years and hadn't really learned how to live as their own sort of functioning society. And God's saying, look, if I'm going to give you a land, I want to teach you how to live in a way that makes all of life flourish. I want to teach you to live in a way that you become fully and truly human. 
And so the commandments reveal our calling. They're not arbitrary rules. They actually show us who we are meant to be. We're meant to be full, flourishing human beings. And the commandments are an insight into how we are supposed to live. Now, so far, so good, right? First few commandments, no idols, you know, have no other gods. You're like, great, great, love, basically love God. You're like, awesome. Then the last couple of commandments, we pivot towards loving our neighbor, and it's about honoring father and mother. And you're like, oh, great, of course, who wouldn't want to honor their father? And mother? I mean, maybe there's some of us, but, but for the most part, we think generally, if I had an honorable father and mother, I would like to honor my father and mother. And then last week, it was do not kill, and we're sort of like, yeah, great, I think that's a baseline for most human societies. And then now we get to commandment seven, and this is where most of us check out. This is where we say, ah, don't start telling me what to do in my private life. And possibly as Americans, or maybe possibly as uh, people living in the 21st century, we have this notion that it's all good when it comes to sort of how we relate with other people, but then there's this sort of behavior that really has nothing to do with you. It's none of your business. It's about me and my happiness and my own expression and experience of love, so stay the heck out of my bedroom, please. Now, if you think today we're going to get a little bit real and honest, you're correct. And if it's hot in here now, <laughs> it, it, I'm, I'm about to turn the heat up. <laughs> Exodus 20 verse 14 simply stated is do not commit adultery. And whether you're a Christian or not, this is exactly the point where people say, stop telling me what to do. Don't mess with my private life. Or maybe you don't think that. Maybe the truth is this subject matter holds uh, a, t a tender spot in your heart because there's a tremendous amount of pain. Maybe you've been on the other side of an affair and you think there's a lot of pain connected with this word adultery. Or maybe you've been on the side of where you've fallen into that behavior and there's, there's a lot of shame connected to it. So even if we aren't ready to sort of kick God out of our private life, maybe we're afraid to let him get too close because it's a place of pain and a place of shame. And we're saying, God, I, I don't really know how to welcome what you're saying here. And so this morning, I want us to work through this subject very carefully, and by, doing, by working our way through three questions. Three questions that will help guide us through this subject, and then hopefully at the end, turn the spotlight on Jesus and what he offers us in his life and death and resurrection. So question number one is the easiest question. What is adultery? What is adultery? At its most sort of basic level, maybe even at the level of the Ten Commandments, it's adultery is having sexual relations with a person who is not your spouse. It may be that you're a single person and you've had sex with someone, but you're not married to them. It may be that you're a married person and you've had some sort of sexual relationship with a person who's not your spouse. At a very baseline level, this is what the commandment is addressing. And so that leads us to our second question, why is adultery prohibited? And we're left with a couple of premises, okay? Premise number one is, because God hates fun. And so of course he would prohibit this. Everyone knows all the good sex is out there and God hates fun, therefore he says, ah, 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 ah. No, 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 no. 
right? Or our premise is God is good and loving and has our freedom and our good in mind. And I think it's the latter, obviously, right? But I want to show you why. And in order to show you why, I want us to zoom one level out and to talk about sex itself. Can we do that in church? Is that okay? I mean, y'all are talking about it out there anyway, right? You're watching Netflix and all this. Stuff. Let's just talk about it in church. Can we do that? Netflix. Why is, it, why is adultery prohibited? What, what is it about sex? I just want to say two things about it. One that you see from even a sociological standpoint and one that you see from a theological standpoint, okay? The first part is this. Sex is a powerful bond, not simply a way of expressing love. Sex is a powerful bond, not simply a way of expressing love. Now, in our society today, if you ignore this part and you only take the second part and you say, oh, sex is just a way of expressing love, if that's all that it is, then of course, why, oh, why would you pre prevent people from expressing their love to one another, you silly little Christian, you know? So wait a minute, sex is much more than just a way of expressing love, it's actually a very, very powerful bond. Now actually, we, we could talk about sex as being powerful in and of itself, we could talk about how the mystery of how children come from sex being, speaks of how powerful sex is in itself because it has the power to create creatures who are made in the image of God. That's powerful. The power to create image of beings that are in the image of God, that's powerful in and of itself. But take procreation out of it. Take children out of it. Sex on its own is powerful because of the bond that it forges. I uh, spent a couple of years as part of my research researching how there are different rituals in sociology that create human connections and, and the different interactive ritual chains, the things that people do together that sort of help forge bonds. And in the course of, of reading that, one of the books I came across was about interaction ritual chains and a sociologist named Randall Collins says it this way about sex. He says, sex can produce the strongest of all forms of solidarity. Human beings crave a sense of solidarity. We need to know where we belong. We need to know whom, whom we uh, belong to and with. And, and when it comes to two people, sex produces the strongest of all forms of solidarity. Sexual intercourse is the ritual of love. This is purely in sociological terms. It is the ritual of love. It both creates and recreates the social tie. It creates a social tie, and every time it is done, it recreates, reinforces that social tie, and it symbolizes that social tie. Do you see how strong that is? It's the strongest of all forms of solidarity, and there's a number of, of reasons for that. We won't go into all of that in church. But the part, part of the thing that I want you to see is how strong of a bond it makes, to the point that Human beings, despite our effort to sort of jettison what we think is like all oh, old prudish kind of ways of thinking about morality, we've not been able to shake the fact that we feel an attachment to the person that we've just been with. Another sociologist out of UC Berkeley, um, Arlie Hochschild, talks about a woman who lived in a community, lived in communities, would have been in the 70s or so, and they shared a lot of things in common and everything was sort of the emphasis on living together in community and, and so they shared food, they shared clothes, they shared drugs, and, and there was this man that she was in a relationship with and that relationship became sexual at some point. 
And then she discovered that that man had also been with another woman, a friend of hers. And she describes, as part of this research, she describes uh, the, the feeling of saying, I didn't want to feel jealous. I wanted to apply our shared community uh, uh, value even to sexual intercourse. And she said, I couldn't do it. I couldn't help but feel the sense of jealousy, and not just jealousy, but she said, I, I felt hor- horribly hurt, lonely, and depressed, and couldn't shake the depression, and ultimately she ended up leaving the community. Now, another story of another community where it's ex- specifically a community where sexual freedom is allowed. Now, I know this isn't the norm for most of the people that we know out there, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm picking an illustration that's on the far end of the spectrum just to say, what if we followed the logic all the way to its conclusion? If sex is just the expression of love, if it's not that big of a deal, if it, there's not any sort of social tie, then why can't we just have a community where it just sort of, we rotate, switch partners, all that sort of stuff? And, and, and what she describes in this community is that jealousy was a common problem. And so this community described having to work on being okay with adultery, but not okay with jealousy. Now, if that isn't ethical gymnastics, I don't know what is. Because who decides jealousy is wrong, immoral, but adultery is moral? Who decides that? And on what basis do you decide that? You see, people want to say, oh, Christians, you're just fussy with all your arbitrary rules, but everybody has rules. Everybody has a system of filtering out, this is good, this is not good. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a a great hypocrisy in our culture that tries to pretend that there's no such thing as morality, there's only freedom, do whatever you want. That's baloney. They don't even live like that. Because here's a community that's trying to take sexual freedom to its ultimate conclusion, ultimate expression, and they're saying, oh, we have rules here, you cannot be jealous. Now why is jealousy a worse moral uh, evil than adultery. You see what I'm saying? Who's deciding the rules? And what I'm trying to say to you this morning is the problem is not that we have boundaries and rules and, and ethical sort of lines. The problem is not that we have those lines. The question is, are those lines set up in a way that are actually good for you? Are, is your sense of morality being constructed in a way that is actually good for you? Because it, 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 let, let's, let's stop the pretenses and the hypocritical thing of like saying, oh, Christians have morality, secular people don't have morality. Everybody has morality. The only question is, have you constructed a morality that is ultimately good for you? What we, what we can say based on point number one is that God does not want our connection to outrun our commitment. God does not want the depth of our bond or solidarity or intimacy to outrun our commitment. One of the worst things you can tell a teenager is sex is bad, don't have sex. One of the best things you can say is sex is powerful, so you need something powerful enough to contain it so that it becomes a force for good. And that is the covenant of marriage. The illustration here, Colorado, we've got wildfires raging at different parts of the state. We all understand that fires out of control can be very destructive, correct? But fires in the fire pit are a glorious campfire experience. Fires in a fireplace are wonderful things to have around the winter time. And so the issue is not, ooh, fire, 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 bad, I don't want fire, no fire. The issue is, do you have a fireplace strong enough to contain that fire? 
Do you have a fireplace strong enough to harness the power of that fire for good and not for destruction? And what God wants us to know is that the covenant of marriage is the only thing that's strong enough to harness the power of sex for good and not for your destruction. That's what this is about. Yeah, you can clap. That's all right. (laughs) Secondly, why is adultery prohibited? Secondly, because sex is a signpost of salvation, not simply a pathway to pleasure. So we gave our sociological answer. Now here's our theological answer. In God's economy, sex is not just a pathway to pleasure. This is why it makes me so mad when I pick up a Christian marriage book and all they have to say about sex is all the ways to increase pleasure. Is that all Christians have to say on this subject? Give me a break. Christians have to offer something that says sex is more sacred than you think. Sex is holier than you realize. It's actually a signpost of salvation. You're like, Glenn, come on. I mean, aren't you just going above and beyond? I mean, over the top here. I mean, really? Yes. How? Because in Genesis, when God creates heaven and earth, land and sky, he creates a pair, several pairs of opposites. And then what we see in the fall is the fracturing of multiple sets of pairs, gods and humans, male, uh, God and humans, male and female, brother, all of this stuff gets ripped apart. And then you see a letter, a, a little compact letter in the New Testament called Ephesians. And there's this verse in the beginning of Ephesians, Ephesians 1.10, where Paul says, one day, everything in heaven and on earth will come together in Christ Jesus. And then do you know what Paul says? The rest of his letter shows you all the things that will come together. He talks about God and humans being reconciled. He talks about Jews and Gentiles being reconciled. And by the time he gets to Ephesians chapter 5, that famous chapter on marriage, he says there's something about this union. And he goes, but I'm really speaking about the mystery of Christ and the church. And then when you get to the book of Revelation, John starts to talk about this vision of the end of all things when God renews the world and restores all things. And the best language John can come up with is the language of marriage. He says it's the wedding feast. It's the marriage supper of the lamb. The bride has made herself ready. The bridegroom calls. Can you imagine out of all the metaphors in the world, the scripture says the the union of a man and a woman is a signpost of salvation, not simply a pathway to pleasure. This is why Christians have to change the conversation even about the traditional view of marriage. The reason we hold to a traditional view of marriage is not simply because we're old-fashioned and it's the traditional view of marriage. Yes, and because marriage itself is a symbol of two paired opposites being brought together. It's a signpost of salvation not just a pathway to pleasure. So if someone comes to us, a young couple at New Life Downtown, says, will you help us get ready for marriage? We say, great. But just so you know, your marriage covenant that you're about to enter in is not just because you two love each other. You're about to be a living signpost in the world of God's salvation. You're about to be a living flesh and blood signpost that stands in the world as a witness to God's salvation. It's more sacred than you think. If our sociology point helped us realize that sex is more powerful than you think, our theological point helped us realize that sex is more sacred than you think. You got it? You with me so far? Now let me say something to our singles. Because actually, singleness also has a way of pointing towards God's salvation. 
Jesus said that in the age to come, in the new creation, no one will be given or handed over into marriage. There won't be marriage anymore. There's a sense in which Christ himself will be joined to us in such a way that completes us that, that, that these other human relationships, you don't need a signpost when you've arrived at the destination. Right? You don't need the sign that says, Denver, this way. If you're already in Denver, I'm like, I don't need the sign. I got the thing. I'm here. Right? And so if, for all of you who are living as singles, you're not just living in a waiting room until you get married. You are, as in your singleness, a very signpost to the age to come where Christ truly is all. And I know that can be hard and that can be frustrating and I don't mean to make it sound easy, but I want you to know that whether you are single or whether you are married, both of those stations in Christ can become signs that point toward the world to come. Amen? Okay, are you with me? We're doing okay, all right. Third question, why then are we tempted to commit adultery? If we know why God prohibits it, if we understand this, why then is this such a temptation? There's probably a dozen reasons we could come up with. I'm just gonna list three. One, it may be that it's because we've constructed an idealized version of love and marriage. It may be that we've sort of thought that our marriage will deliver everything we've ever waited for. And sometimes, just from a pastoral experience, sometimes we see this among Christian young people more so than not. Because for, for Christian young people, you go through youth group, and you're like, I'm saving myself for marriage, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm gonna find the one, and then you find the one, and you have all of this huge sort of bucket of, of uh, uh, expectations that you've built up. And not just expectations, but actually idealizations that you've built up, and then you enter your marriage and you're like, hand it over to your spouse. And like, what's this? This is all of my pent up ideals and expectations. You're gonna fulfill them. <laughs> and they're like, I'm sorry, what? No, I didn't sign up for that. And you don't realize you're doing it. It's only in the course of having an argument that you realize you've done it. You're like, oh, I've made an ideal out of this thing. I've, I've sort of, you know, you know, thought that marriage would, would deliver on all of, it, of these promises and all of these desires. Stanley Hauerwas is a theologian is in his retirement now, but he used to say, and if you know Hauerwas, you know, he always says things in the most provocative way possible. So take this with more than a grain of salt. But Hauerwas says, everybody marries the wrong person. <laughs> And what he means by that is if you've had that moment in your marriage, maybe five years in, maybe 10 years in, maybe 15 years in, where you're like, oh man, just know that everybody marries the wrong person. Because what you're comparing your marriage to is actually an ideal. You're comparing it to something that doesn't exist. And you have two <laughs> fallen human beings with their own sets of baggage and pain and issues and all this stuff, you're both gonna let each other down. Maybe that's a gentler way to say it. You're both going to let each other down. That's part of the deal. And so one of the things, if we don't, if we don't catch this, if we don't accept this, then we'll always be tempted to say, well, my marriage should be like this. It's not marriage that's the problem, it's my husband who's the problem. It's my wife who's the problem. Now, caveat, in some situations where there's abuse and all of this stuff, that truly is 
the case. And you, it, 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 it can be time to exit that marriage. But I'm talking about for a lot of us who are not in those cases where you're like, I, I, I don't know that they've done anything this way or that way. It's just that I've sort of asked marriage to deliver this and my spouse is averaging about this. And so you're like, you're like it's my spouse. The problem's her. The problem's him. And at some point in every Christian marriage, you have to say, all right, it's us. You accept me, I accept you. Let's go another 10, let's go another 20, let's go another 30. And, and recognize that part of the process of holiness is letting go of your ideals of love and marriage. All right, second. The other thing that tempts us toward adultery to look elsewhere is because we turn our spouse into an idol by expecting them to give what only God can give. Now be careful, hear me in this. Some Christians say, oh, I shouldn't rely on my spouse for anything. That's not quite right. Because part of how God communicates his love to you is through your spouse. That, that is true. Part of how God communicates his comfort and his is through your spouse. It's just that your spouse is not actually the source. Do you know the difference between a source and a carrier or a vessel? It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. If, if I think that this water bottle is the source of living water, then as soon as this bottle is out, I'll be like, come on, stupid bottle, give me more water. I need more water. Like, look, water came through the bottle, but water did not come from the bottle. Love, acceptance, comfort, safety, they might well come through your spouse but they do not come from your spouse. And if, yeah. <laughs> and every time, every time I feel myself getting overly frustrated or overly disappointed, I realize maybe I'm forgetting who the source actually is. The, one of the reasons why, this is like pre-adultery 10 steps, maybe 20 steps, before you even get down that road, if you realize, you know what? I think I've made an idol out of my spouse. I have confused them for the actual source of love. You know what happens when you, when you do that? You tend to, this happens, I've seen this over and over again, you tend to actually sexualize every form of love. So what, what, what you're really looking for is encouragement, but what you ask for is sex. What you're really looking for is comfort, but what you ask for is sex. What you're really looking for is companionship, but what you ask for is sex. Do you see how you're confusing some of the stuff here? And, and, and when you make your spouse an idol and expect them to be the source of everything, all of a sudden, the deeper things that you need, you're like, oh, it's got to come from them, and it's got to come from only them, and it's got to come through sex. It can, but it doesn't only. And when you don't make your spouse an idol, all of a sudden you realize, you know what? I, the Lord meets me in, in, through this in lots of different ways. In fact, there's a reason, and I don't want to take too much of a rabbit trail here, but there's a reason why in the biblical tradition, there's a deep connection between our language of intimacy with one another and our language of prayer. Because there's a sense in which the thing our soul really aches for, the intimacy and love we really long for, can only be quenched by the God who is the fountain of eternal life. 
It can only be quenched by him. This is, the, this is the whole point of the story of Jesus with the woman at the well in John 4. In previous Old Testament stories, a man finds his true love at a, at a well by asking a woman for a drink. And so John 4 sets this up that way, and you think, oh boy, is something happening here with Jesus? And the way? No, it flips, and all of a sudden he starts asking her about her life, and she's like, I've got four, five husbands, whatever, which actually means that other men have set her aside, have used her up and cast her aside, because in the first century, a woman couldn't divorce a man. It was a man that had used her up and cast her aside, and Jesus said, if if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would have asked me for a drink. Some of you are looking for a drink of living water in every relationship you find, but what you're really longing for, the comfort, the belonging, the acceptance, the peace, the healing that you're really longing for only comes from Jesus himself. And as long as you keep going to cracked and broken wells and saying, no, 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 what I need is more sex. No, 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 what I need is another boyfriend. No, 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 what I need is another this. No, what I need is another affair. What I need. All that you're doing is going to drink from a muddy, broken well. And Jesus says, if you had knew who was right here, you would have asked me for a drink. The third reason that maybe we are tempted toward adultery is that we've fallen into addictions and destructive habits. Sometimes it's, it's, not, it's not how it started, it started here and then all of a sudden, whoa, how did I know, wait, wait a minute, well, I didn't mean to do that. Gosh, I didn't really mean to, and all of a sudden. And there's so much research about how addictive pornography is, how prevalent pornography is. And there's so much grace available to you to free you from this. Nobody warned our young people that one look is not just one look. Nobody warned them that one sort of visit to a website would lead to a desire for more. And on and on we become enslaved. And maybe you or your friends have believed the lie that pornography is a victimless crime. Well, I'm not really hurting anybody. But the deeper you dive into it, and I have friends who are involved in the trafficking uh, rescue and changing laws. And there's a very clear link between the pornography industry and the trafficking industry. And so you can't believe the lie that this is a victimless crime. That, that well, if people choose to do that, it's not my problem if I want to look. You're participating in the degradation of a person made in the image of God. There's been so many articles written about how the hookup culture and the porn culture has actually killed dating. Uh, last year I read a book, a secular book, about modern uh, romance. Had very crude, but it was eye-opening to discover how much this stuff has actually eroded at our ability to have normal interactions, first dates. People don't know how to do first dates anymore. Don't know how to strike up conversations without all of a sudden trying to force it into a sexual relationship. And I'm saying to you guys, we are not better off because of this. The lie that began in the garden, you can take this, it's good, it's fine, it's, it'll make you like God, is still the lie that people believe today. Don't you feel more powerful when you can look at this and see this and access this and watch this, look at all this stuff. It's a lie because it's actually enslaved you and killed you and destroyed your ability to have real relationships, and real interactions with people. Some, an article recently uh, uh, 
pointed out how capitalism has actually crept into our intimacy. And so now bodies are commodities and there are winners and losers. And so we treat the sexual exchange like we do any other sort of capitalist exchange. What's the value for my investment? It's gross, isn't it? But that's where we are. What's the, what's the payoff for my investment? Ah, I don't really want a real relationship. Too much drama. Let's just go with the porn tonight. And I want to say to you gently, gently, it's destroying you. But the Lord Jesus wants to free you. The Lord Jesus wants to free you today. You see, all three of these things really could be boiled down to idolatry. When marriage, a spouse, or sex is an idol, we are actually prone to adultery, but maybe another way of saying it is that adultery often reveals our idolatry. You make an idol out of your marriage, you make an idol out of your spouse, you make an idol out of sex, and eventually adultery will follow. In the Old Testament, adultery and idolatry are, are so closely connected when the people of God worshiped false gods, they were called spiritual adulterers. And when Solomon committed adultery with all of his concubines, it led him into idolatry. And so you see this connection between, because both things at its core, it's about unfaithfulness. And here's where the word of the Lord like a sword cuts even deeper. We've all been unfaithful to the Lord. We've all been unfaithful to others in some way. Jesus said, look, if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, that, you, you, you've already begun. You've already taken the step. Maybe the social consequences are not the same, but in your heart, you've already welcomed in the destruction that will undo you. We've all been unfaithful. And so John 8, when Jesus sees the woman who's been caught in the act of adultery and they bring her to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, what are we going to do here? And bending down, Jesus starts to write in the ground. And then verse 10, Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, 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 go. And from now on, don't sin anymore. Can I tell you that the gospel makes any day the day of salvation? Today can be your day of salvation. You don't have to say, well, gosh, it's too late. You don't know my patterns. You don't know the bondage. You don't know the history. You don't know the pain. I don't. But I do know that any day can become the day of salvation. Maybe you missed it at this altar call. Maybe you missed it in your college days. Maybe you missed it in your youth. Maybe you It's not too late. Today, this day, can be the day of salvation for you. This day can be the day that Jesus says, hey, 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 look, look. Where are your accusers? Where's the one ready to throw a stone at you? Where are they? They're gone. You know why? Because no one is without sin. And the only one who is without sin is not here to throw a stone. The only one who's without sin is here to say, I don't condemn you, but I offer you freedom. Go and sin no more. This morning I want us 
to remember that we are saved, not by our faithfulness, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Amen? We're not here to sort of take an inventory and say, well, how, how's your faithfulness meter? Ooh, okay. But to say, look, we're all here because at some level, to some degree, with some relationship, we've been unfaithful, but we come every Sunday to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ and remember that Jesus Christ has been faithful to us, has been faithful to the Father, and by his faithfulness, we are saved when we put our trust in him. And this morning, there is no condemnation. There is no shame. There is a chance to be free. There is a chance to let salvation meet you in the desert. There's a chance to let salvation exchange the, the cracked and broken wells you've been drinking out of and offer you something deeper and richer. C.S. Lewis said this this way. He said, look, the truth is our Lord that seems to find our desires not too strong. Maybe you're here and you're like, oh, you know, the problem is, is I just have such a strong desire for intimacy. That's not the problem. It's not that our desires are too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Somebody say infinite joy. <laughs> that is what is being offered to you, infinite joy. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the, at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. This is why the commandment was given for our life. This is why the commandment was given for our freedom because God doesn't want you to be too easily pleased with the offer of this affair or this pornography or this image or this movie or this relationship. God wants you to be only be satisfied by the ultimate infinite joy and love that Jesus offers to you. That's what God offers you. So as the worship team comes, would you bow your heads this morning? We come to the table of the Lord saying, yes, God, we want to take you up on your offer. We want your offer. We want this. We want the infinite joy. We want the true love. We want to be anchored in you. We want to be found in you. So God, return us. Save us from turning the lesser joys, lesser pleasures. Bring us back. Look, I think this is a sermon that at some level touches all of us. And that's why every Sunday we pray a prayer of confession together because I'm not interested in singling out any one or two of you. I'm interested in all of us responding to the grace of God. I'm interested in all of us confessing again and again that we easily fail in our love for God and for others. We easily fail. And yet, and yet, and yet, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Let's pray this prayer of confession together, church. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry. We humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us.
we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name.